1871. Splendid new spring goods at D. McCarthy & Co.'s. Black and colored silks. Extra quality from $1 to $2.50 per yard. Dress goods. New styles in material and fabric. Plaids, plain and mixed. Handsome. Good and cheap. Paisley. Wool and thibet. Lace. Shawls. Cloaks, sacks and suits. Prints. Linens, damasks, white goods, sheetings, shirtings, and spring woolen goods. An unequaled, rich, elegant, and handsome stock of carpets. Ingrains, three-ply, tapestry, brussels, velvets, wiltons. Also, oilcloths, druggets, etc. A full line of upholstery and curtain materials, with an experienced and practical man in charge who does better and cheaper work than can elsewhere be had. Our hosiery, laces, trimmings, notions, etc. Command examination, as does our whole stock when buyers want the best and cheapest goods in the city for their money. We are giving greater drives, lower prices, and more bargains this spring than ever before. Please call and find this proof of what we say. I the air with the greatest of a daring young man on the dying Hi there, this is Hugh Yeeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Hey there, and welcome to episode 34. Today, I'm drinking Lapsang Souchong. Now, usually I use Lapsang Souchong and other rich teas such as Assam and Formosa Oolong for blending. And then a long period of time goes by during which I've been blending and blending and blending, and then comes a day when I realize, hey, I haven't had straight Lapsang Souchong or straight Assam in a while. I should do that because they're awesome. And I have it, and it is awesome. So I've been really grooving on the straight up Lapsang Souchong. Mm. Oh, God damn, that's good. Uh, it's McNulty's Lapsang Souchong, by the way. Thank you for coming to my tea talk. During the last episode, I said the word empathy a lot, but I didn't tie all the threads together as I had intended to do. And that incident on Facebook that I mentioned last time, the post where I initially took Henry Miles's dragging his wife, Emma, out of the house of prostitution as a joke. 
and my friend Beth, my friend April, my wife Grace, replied in a way that was so gentle it was the equivalent of a finger poised on my shoulder. And that's all I needed. And I think they knew that that's all I would need. They didn't have to beat me over the head. They knew I was capable of self-reflection. And I'm thinking of that because I'm the guy who constantly talks about historical context. And if context is not synonymous with empathy, then empathy is at the very least context adjacent. One has to be able to project oneself out of one's own self in order to conceptualize a historical context, a historical setting. Likewise, one, have to, one has to cast oneself out of oneself in order to have empathy for another person. So why didn't I have empathy for Emma? Why didn't I stop and ask myself what my female friends immediately asked? Why would she choose to go to a house of prostitution instead of living with her husband? We're going to find out the answer to that in a future episode. But for now, I just want to say that I am not beating myself up, nor am I patting myself on the back. I don't deserve praise for my small act of self-reflection and redirecting my more sardonic urges towards a place of empathy. That was a small act. It was an easy act for me. My point is the terrifying gulf between myself and the seeming hordes of people on the rabid, batshit crazy right who have adopted cruelty as a virtue. I don't know what to do when I look at that gulf. It's like I'm standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon and looking across at the other side. It's not in any way accurate to say that they're not anywhere near me on any kind of, of scale of empathy, because that would imply that it's just a matter of degree. The truth is that they are antithetical to that small act of empathy. They would look at my act of self-examination and coming to a place of empathy for the sake of historical context and sneer and laugh and make a joke out of it, just like those people in 1871 made a joke out of that line from the poem, Lo, the Poor Indian. They called the Native Americans from the reservation lows. That's why it got to me so much. How do we teach empathy when so many of our people do seem to conceive of cruelty as a virtue? When so many of our people display this hypertrophy of cruelty, I don't know. I'm pessimistic enough to believe that there is no way to reach those people. So I'm scared. And just like those people that I spoke about in the last episode who were scared of fire because it was so uncontrollable, 
but I'm talking about it in a way those people didn't. Those people did what most people do. They redirected their, their fear towards a, an attempt to control that which they feared, and that manifested as a compulsive need to tabulate the damages done by the fire and uh, perhaps control it in the future. They didn't know how many decades that was going to take, but that's how their fear manifested. Their fear of the Native Americans manifested as a cruel joke. And the, the bit about the young American, uh, the young America, that was also, I think, a manifestation of redirected and blunted empathy. The young America meme seemed to be all about a a transgressive youthfulness, barreling ahead, buying, and then throwing away, and then buying again. Uh, rambunctious, if not contemptuous, youth. That does not lend itself to keeping vigilant about Reconstruction. So I feel like it was not an attitude that was amenable towards empathy for the freedmen of the South. These are all threads of empathy that I'm trying to tie together into a clean package, tie it up with a bow. I, I doubt that I'm succeeding, but my point is if I am to have historical context, I have to strive for empathy and I don't know if that's going to make a difference because I don't know if we can ever cross that enormous chasm. This is me trying. This is me teaching. This is me being honest about my motivations. Now, on to the material from 150 years ago this week. Go to the show notes and take a look at that ad I read at the top. Note the name McCarthy. When I read that, I wondered the same thing that I'd been wondering for a while every time I saw that name associated with an advertisement for a dry goods or grocery store or whatever. I never got around to investigating until yesterday. And it turns out that the question that I answered, that I, that I asked myself, hey, is that Dennis McCarthy? The answer to that was yes. Dennis McCarthy was a U.S. congressman and New York lieutenant governor. You can go to the show notes and read this entry from Find a Grave just as well as I can read it to you. But suffice it to say, uh, Dennis McCarthy was easily one of the most well-known Syracusans of the 19th century. He was active in New York state politics for decades. He was a highly successful businessman in Syracuse. So again, I've confirmed that that's the same Dennis McCarthy that appears in this ad. Now, the reason that I chose that ad to read at the top, aside from the fact that it was a, a big, fun ad to read, is that I want you to look at that large font name in the ad 
and note how it's spelled and punctuated. Instead of spelling the name as M-C-C-A-R-T-H-Y, it's M apostrophe C-A-T-H-Y. McCarthy. Now, I don't think it changes it phonetically, but my impression is that that construction with the apostrophe instead of the second C is a reference to Irish heritage. I don't know if that impression is correct. I've asked people about that on a uh, New York State genealogy group. I haven't heard back from anybody, but I am wondering if this was Dennis McCarthy's way of flaunting his Irish heritage, because just recently there's been a big brouhaha over McCarthy's conflict of interests between his political machinations and his ownership of a salt business in Syracuse. Now, salt was in the news because of the uh, imbroglio between the Democrats and the Republicans over tariffs, and salt was one of the primary items that was hotly contested uh, in, in terms of whether we should have a tariff at all, and if so, how high of a, of a tariff. And it's hard to find any news articles that don't make some reference, however sly, to McCarthy's Irishness. You can't get away from someone's Irishness at that time. Like I've been saying, any writer who was portraying Irish people at that time was almost certainly trying to either manipulate or exploit or court or influence them. There was, there were very few exceptions. And I'm wondering if we're looking at another manifestation of 19th century social media that is so similar to 21st century social media. I wonder if this is McCarthy essentially telegraphing, you mad, bro? Yeah. Yeah, I'm Irish. That's my name right there. Big old Irish name. Deal with it. Eh, I don't know if that's the case, but worth throwing out there. It's worth keeping in mind for future reading. On to April 10th, 1871. Now again, all of the springboard articles were printed in Syracuse newspapers 150 years ago this week. I will make it obvious when I'm veering off into the past or the future for materials to support my theme. But uh, here comes a bunch of them that were printed this week. Found! A set of upper teeth were picked up in one of the Geddes streetcars on Saturday. The owner can have them by applying to the conductor. This one is also from the journal. Same day. A man named Harris residing in Cayuga County, a passenger on the train from the east Saturday afternoon, was beaten out of $20 by confidence operators. The money was lent when approaching this city for the purpose of paying charges on a trotting horse. Evidently, Harris don't read the papers. 
This one is from The Standard, April 6th. A very respectably dressed young woman was reeling through Onondaga Street the other day. <laughs> Judgy much? Uh, so the reason I clustered those last two together was to show how nakedly the newspapers of this time jockeyed for position as moral arbiters of their community. They wanted to influence not just the politics, but the moral fiber of the community, and they used carrots and sticks to do that. You'll notice in that same article that I was mentioning about the House of Prostitution, on the first day they didn't mention any names, so I wasn't even sure if they were going to. It was almost as though they were trying to publicly shame them, but they stopped short of mentioning any names because they, they wanted to intimate that, hey, if you keep up the behavior, you are going to get found out. Uh, the next day they identify them, but uh, I don't know if that was their original plan. Here we see the unnamed respectably dressed young woman reeling through Onondaga Street, and I get the impression that the newspaper writer is saying, hey, you're being noticed. We're not going to tell anyone your name now, but we will go so far as to print a little article about this, and maybe people will get talking and figure it out. Maybe not. If they do, that's your own fault. Shape up. Now, the case of the guy on the train is slightly different. They're opting to be arbiters of safety vis-a-vis -vis saying, hey, it's your problem you got conned on the train because you didn't have a subscription to the Syracuse Daily Journal. Sucks to be you. We will continue with material published 150 years ago this week after this word from our sponsor. Salamander felting, or cement, for covering boilers, steam pipes, Cylinders, water pipes, etc. Try it. You can save from 15 to 25 percent in fuel. General Agency, 22 West Water Street, Syracuse, New York. F. E. Carroll. We now return to our show. Moving on with an article from the Journal from April 6th. Letters from the people. Of whose manufacture shall the new steamer be? To the editor of the Syracuse Journal. The bill authorizing the city of Syracuse to purchase another steam fire engine, which shall be located in the first ward, having passed the legislature and received the governor's approval, our common council will soon be called upon to make a selection. Now, in common with many other citizens of the First Ward, I would like to have one of Silsby's engines tried, and for two reasons. First, because I believe they are the best, and second, because they are the cheapest. One of power, equal to either of those we now have, can be had for $500 less in prices and guaranteed to run five years without any expense to the city for repairs. A second-class engine of Silsby's 
Silsby's manufacture has been in use in Saginaw, Michigan, six years, and in writing to me, the chief engineer of the fire department says of it, We purchased a second-class steam fire engine of the Silsby Manufacturing Company six years ago. It has been in constant use since that time. We have found it on every occasion reliable and sure, and have not paid out one cent for repairs on the pump. We use a very large amount of dirty and gritty water. The average depth from which we raise water is about 14 feet, and the average length of hose laid at fires for the last two years was about 800 feet. My only interest in desiring a trial of the Silsby engine is in behalf of the city. For money can be saved both in its purchase and repairs, and that it will do as good work as any other, I am satisfied. The manufacturers guarantee it free of expense for repairs for five years. They also guarantee it to do fairly as good work as one of the same class of any other manufacturer, and offer to sell it for less money. These propositions are worthy of the consideration of the Common Council, and I hope that before an engine is purchased, a committee will be appointed charged with the duty of procuring from the Silsby Manufacturing Company a formal proposal. Salt Point. Hugh here. Notice that line about the average length of hose laid at fires for the last two years being about 800 feet. That's a pretty impressive distance, and it goes to show you how poor the fire prevention and suppression infrastructure was at the time. I need to look back at my illustrations of fire engines at the time, because for all I know, that average 800 feet hose length was because the fire engines couldn't get off of the train tracks. I remember an article about uh, a fire engine going to Oneida via the train tracks. I don't know how many of them were limited in that way, but that 800-foot length makes me suspect that they were limited to, to train tracks, and that's one of the reasons why fires were so hideously difficult to deal with at the time. They just didn't have the infrastructure in, in any respect. Moving on to the journal April 6th. Uh, where they cover the good old court record before Police Justice Corbett. Thursday, April 6th, 1871. Edward McCormick, James Mahan, and Thomas Powers were arraigned, charged on oath of Henry J. Mowry with malicious trespass in entering the Geddes Distillery, breaking the doors and windows, and dancing on Sunday. They all plead, pled guilty, and each was sentenced to to pay a fine of $25 or go to the penitentiary for 90 days. It being the first offense of any kind of which the boys were guilty, the execution of the sentence was suspended during good behavior. This one was hilarious because it revealed my weird brain and the way it parses sentences. I sat on this one for about 48 hours because I was baffled. I read this as these guys entered the Geddes Distillery, broke the doors and windows, and danced. <laughs> I thought that the on Sunday part applied to the entire sentence. It took me about 48 hours of going through the newspapers and, and coming up with no uh, explanatory articles, no commentary on this bizarre sequence of events, 
So I thought, wait, nobody nobody thought it was weird that these guys broke in and then danced? Uh, wow, I knew that dancing was a transgressive act in the 19th century, but that just, that's, that's weird. Um, and I finally took another look, and I parsed the sentence again, and then I realized that dancing on Sunday was a separate charge. And it's an excellent example of historical distance causing errors in interpretation, because I'm so far removed from a time and place when dancing on Sunday would be an illegal act that it never occurred to me to think of that, so it influenced how I parsed the sentence. We will continue with our content after this brief message. Clothing. A card of 1871. Sullivan and Besant, for Granger Block. To the public, we have received our spring stock of French, English, and American cloths, casimirs, and vestings, which, for style, quality, and price, will compare favorably with any goods ever offered in this market, and are prepared to manufacture the same into gentlemen's garments, in accordance with the most approved fashions, equal to any house in the country, at prices that defy competition. Sullivan and Besant, Practical Tailors, for Granger Block, Syracuse, New York. And we're back. This is from the Syracuse Daily Standard, again on April 6th. The late arrests have somewhat checked the disposition of boys to jump on the Central Railroad cars. And then, skipping over to the journal of April 10th, Another boy was brought up for jumping on and off the cars and was let go with a reprimand. So, again, this is a follow-up from the previous episode. The boys jumping onto and off of the trains while they were in motion seems to have abated, according to the newspaper, and the punishments seem to have likewise abated. So they seem to be easing off on their performative punishment. Now, the next item in the court record is a sort of uh, springboard for me. Lorenzo Freeman, colored, was arraigned, charged with immoderate driving in the streets in violation of the city ordinances. He pled guilty and was sentenced to pay a fine of $10 or go to the penitentiary for 50 days, the execution of the sentence being suspended during good behavior. Historic headlines will return after this brief message. Spring overcoats and suits for men and boys, stylish and cheap, a great variety at Morris and Co.'s. We now return to our show. On April 5th, the Syracuse Daily Standard printed an article about the public menaces, menace of horses racing in the street. So this connects with that court record that I just read to you about immoderate driving. 
one of the results of fast driving. We have several times called the attention of the proper authorities to the dangers liable to result from the fast driving upon some of our wood-paved streets, and now we have a serious accident to record. Yesterday afternoon, a little daughter of Mr. Henry Clay Barnes, residing on East Fayette Street, ventured out upon the pavement where several fast horses were being speeded. She was run over and so seriously injured that it was feared she could not survive and lies in a critical condition this morning and suffers from a severe wound upon her head. It is only surprising that there are not more accidents in this street from such causes. Each afternoon it is converted into a race course, and the life of any person who attempts to cross the street is endangered. Why do the police allow such a state of affairs to exist? A city ordinance reads, Any person who shall immoderately drive or ride any horse or other animal in any avenue, street, alley, or lane within the city shall be liable to a penalty of not less than two nor more than ten dollars. It is... It is as much the duty of the police to enforce this ordinance as any other, and the public are beginning to inquire why it is that it is not enforced. Almost every day, the lives and limbs of citizens are endangered, and no effort is made to protect them. How long shall it be so? Hugh here. In case you're worried about the little girl, I did some digging into newspaper archives and Ancestry.com, and I found out that she survived. She died in 1941 in Springfield, Illinois, and you can go see her grave for yourself on the Find a Grave link in the show notes. Mm. Ah, that's good. So I was delighted to read that last article because it gave me an excuse to share with you a flame war from three years ago. This was back when I was first getting into following along with the newspapers from 150 years ago on that day. Now, whatever you think of the overwrought and officious tone of this letter to the editor, you've got to admire the command of language. It paints a vivid picture of daily life in Syracuse 150 years ago, including the most popular horse racing courses, Onondaga and Messina. So this is from the Syracuse Journal, January 8th, 1868, about three years prior to this week we're following. Letters from the people, horse racing in public thoroughfares, to the editor of the Syracuse Journal. I observe... In reading your paper, frequent notices of accidents, and sometimes quite serious ones, resulting from fast driving in our streets, I have been waiting anxiously of late in the hope that you would call the attention of the public to an open and shameful violation of the law in that regard, which is suffered to take place every day in one of the most public thoroughfares of our city, and what makes the practice the more reprehensible is the fact that it, if it is not directly sanctioned by the official guardians of the city, who, I am told, are frequently present, no efforts are made by them to correct the evil, although their attention has been officially called to it. James Street has become the sporting ground of the city. Every afternoon, about two o'clock, commences the gathering of idle boys, 
soon reinforced by equally idle men, and by three o'clock the crowd is gathered and the sport begins. From that hour it is understood that the sportsmen are to have the exclusive use of the street until darkness drives them trailing home. If it becomes necessary for a quiet resident of the street to ride or drive to the city, he is compelled to go by some other thoroughfare than the one he has been roundly taxed to improve. The only compensation afforded to the resident of the street is the incidental improvement that the thoughtful and observing man may draw from it. It is a noble field for the study of human nature. In the motley crowd can be found all shades of character, from the ragged urchin and full-grown bloated hanger-on at low saloons, up through the swearing John and professional gambler, to the gentleman whip, and respectable citizen, and, I regret to say, the delicate lady who, I am sure, would not knowingly give encouragement to the views which follow in the train of these daily gatherings. While I do not wish to call in question the taste of those citizens who see no evil in these daily pastimes, I do wish to call attention to their dangerous tendencies and to their open violation of law. Every day we read over in the papers a long list, first of boys who have been arrested for jumping on the passing cars, to the danger of their own limbs, but no heed is paid to the respectable citizen who endangers the lives of children or adults, who are forced to use the street to reach their own homes. Second, of an unfortunate class whose appetites are more powerful than their self-control. And third, street strollers and vagrants whose unfortunate educations might be pleaded in extenuation of their faults. These are each and all subject, subjected by our worthy police justice to wholesome discipline, and are usually treated to a fine of ten dollars or a sojourn of thirty days at the fashionable Hotel de Pitts, while he who endangers the lives of innocent and unoffending citizens, every day he engages in his manly sport, is suffered by the same officer to go scot-free. At any rate, if the sport must go on, why not confine it to the Onondaga and Messina racecourses? grounds provided especially for such uses. If left to go unchecked, or at least winked at by the high executive officers of the city, I see no remedy for quiet, law-abiding citizens but to wait until some terrible accident results, when some one of the solid men who engage in the open violation of law will be called upon to respond in a round $10,000 verdict of damages to an innocent child who has been made a cripple for life, or if the offender happens, as very probable, to be a man of straw, when the city will be called upon to respond in a still larger sum. For juries notoriously have but little sympathy for corporations. My last assertion may surprise some, but I venture the suggestion that if they consult some of their legal friends, they will receive the opinion that a practice like this, openly allowed by the city authorities after their attention has been officially called to the abuse, will hold the city to full damages if the parties offending are not able to respond individually. A Citizen Historic Headlines will be right back. 1871 
1871. Joseph Savage informs his friends and the public that he is ready to supply them with lake ice of fine quality. For terms, see cards, or inquire of George Cowell, 177 West Genesee Street, Drake and Thompson, Whiting Block, C.L. Hasbrook, 49 East Genesee Street, or of the subscriber, 65 James Street. We now return to our show. When I first encountered that officious letter about horse racing on James Street in the journal, I had no idea it was just the opening salvo in a delicious newspaper squabble. Once again, the first letter from a citizen complaining about the horse racing on James Street was published in the journal on January 8, 1868. The next day, the Courier and Union published this withering rebuttal. Pleasure driving on James Street. In yesterday's journal, we notice a long communication from a citizen finding fault with persons who resort to one of the widest avenues in the city for the purpose of enjoying the beautiful pleasure of sleigh riding. Now, we are also a citizen and enjoy the innocent recreation that is afforded on James Street by gliding rapidly over the beautiful snow propelled by a 240 nag and can see no harm in the amusement particularly as no accident as yet has happened to mar the gay scenes which are witnessed every day during the winter, when the sleighing is in as good condition as it is at the present time. The danger of fast driving on James Street is all imaginary as regards being run over, and we can see no real harm in allowing the people to use a street which they have been roundly taxed to improve. This is getting to be a fast age, and people of old slow ideas and notions, who choose to jog along after the old style, should, when they ride out in their jumpers, go by some other thoroughfare, if they cannot drive nags with speed sufficient to keep out of the way and are afraid of being run over, if delicate ladies give encouragement and are present enjoying this carnival of fun and pleasure on James Street and not afraid of being run over, why should a citizen complain if he can so easily take a back street if he wishes to keep clear of the supposed danger of fast driving and the sound of jingling bells and laughing bells intermingled with the merry go-lang of the experienced whip as they go dashing along that wide thoroughfare to the great amusement of the ragged urchins and others who repair to this place for enjoyment and pleasure. If the city authorities are present, on these occasions, as a citizen has been informed they are, then we have no fears for the safety of our pedestrians or the lives of innocent and unoffending citizens who reside on that avenue. We can see no remedy for the Rip Van Winkles but to take the back streets if they desire a quiet drive, or take the sidewalks if on foot, as they are very wide and were put in good condition during the past season. Hugh here. On the same day, the Daily Standard published a letter from another citizen who agreed with the sentiment of the original complaint. New Driving Park, 
James Street is a wide street. It has a wide roadway with excellent pavement foundation for good sleighing with little snow. Our town is getting to be a fast town, fast in everything, and especially in fast horses. The wealthy have horses, and almost every one that can raise 14 shillings has a horse or horses, and the fun of it is all seem running to fast horses. This being so, of course the nags must have a lively airing when there's good slipping, and for this a driving park is necessary. We have one. James Street has been appropriated by the whole fast horse fraternity. The professional gambler in races, the businessman who has caught horse on the brain, the knobby young man with plenty of dimes, and others with mighty few are all stockholders. Every afternoon when there's snow on the ground, the new driving park, James Street, presents a lively scene. A hundred or more fast nags are there in hot training from 2 p.m. till dark, and of course this draws out a crowd of people to see the jehuing. Two, three, four abreast, and a long string, the nags come down pell-mell. It's constant work. If man, woman, child, or team attempts to cross the new driving park, it is at peril of life or limb, and as for driving along that street in comfort, it's out of the question. Now, isn't it about time that this thing was played out? Must we wait till some poor being is crippled for life or killed before the authorities will interfere? We grant that respectable men and some of our best citizens are to blame in the matter. Will they please stop and consider? Have they a right to do in one public street what they would cry out against if done in another by a pack of roughs? We hope all may cheerfully cease the bad practice and seek some other and more proper place to speed their animals, where the danger and annoyance will be less. Hugh here. It wasn't until just now, as I was reading that, that it occurred to me how perfectly this dovetails with everything I've been saying about young America. That contemptuous article, the second from the last one that I read, had an air of appreciation for the fast, young, contemptuous men with coins in their pockets. That's, that's the essence of that young America meme. So, is this flame war done? Find out after this word from our sponsor. Patent Office. J.J. Greenaw, formerly of the U.S. Patent Office, offers his services to inventors to obtain their patents and to those owning property in patents as counsel in presenting cases before the United States courts for infringements, etc. Having had a longer experience in this business than any person now engaged in it in this United States. He also will engage in civil and mechanical engineering, gives estimates for railroads, machinery, hydraulic works, and making surveys and plans therefore. Office 103, West Onondaga Street, Syracuse. And we're back. The next day, January 10th, the Courier and Union doubled down with a duo of scornful letters. 
More about James Street and the exhibition of gay turnouts. Mr. Editor, I am a fast fellow and would like to drive a fast horse and live in a fast town, but I don't own a fast animal, nor do I live in a city, village, or town that is within sixty degrees of fast. Why, sir, I harnessed my mare yesterday and went out to ride. She can go a mile in two minutes and forty seconds. And in the course of my ride came to James Street. I rode up and down the street and found no animal of the equine species that could travel with mine, and then I went home. This morning I took up my daily paper and read an article entitled New Driving Park, and among other things I saw this. Now, isn't it about time that this thing was played out? What played out? Driving a horse hitched to a cutter up and down James Street. Of course that is not it. Crowds of people along the street. Of course that is not the thing that is to be played out, for people have the right to assemble peaceably on any street. What thing, then? It must be fast driving. Now, sir, fast driving is a mile into eighteen. Who has a horse that can do this? I will give in to one statement. There are farmers with bobsleds and wood and hay racks who are quietly traveling up James Street who are in danger. These little cutters might run into them, and where would the bobs and racks be? Where? Now, Mr. Courier, the council can regulate fast driving, but there has been none. If they can pass an ordinance ordering a man to drive in so much time a certain distance, then they can regulate the animal's legs. I tell you privately that you may pay your alderman a fifty for me if he shall pass an ordinance that my horse shall go in two twenty, and then make the city enforce it. If he goes lower than that, I will go to the Messina Springs and get Tasker to pass an ordinance. I have a plan. Namely, get a law passed that all horses shall go on a walk whenever any person is on the street or roadside or traveling on the highway, and if any horse or man violates the ordinance, put both in the pound, detaining them under treatment until neither can go faster than one mile an hour. Yours, lastly, Yehu. Pleasure Driving on James Street Editors, Courier I want to find a little fault, too, about driving on James Street, and will complain of different class of pleasure-seekers than has been spoken of in the many communications that have here heretofore appeared on this subject. I know of no better place to show the style and speed of a good horse than James Street, particularly when it is good sleighing, and I take great pleasure in witnessing their movements up and down the street at a 2.20 or 2.30 gait. But the degree of my pleasure has been greatly abated by the appearance on the avenue of a large number of very slow nags that so obstructed the thoroughfare as to deprive the good turnouts of a fair chance for display. If our city fathers take an interest in this matter, I hope that on all future carnival occasions they will exclude from the avenue, while the public are enjoying these exhilarating scenes and pleasures, all drones and slow nags." Alan Butler, January 9th, 1868. Hugh here. I scoured the next few days of newspapers, but the guns of the flame war were silent for nine days. And then, Syracuse Daily Standard, Monday morning, January 20th, 
1868. Fast driving, etc. A correspondent of an exchange complains of fast driving in the streets as dangerous, whereat another comes back in this wise. What is the use of having rich papas if we cannot do as we like? Suppose we run over a child once in a while. We are rich, and don't mind paying for the luxury of killing a young'un occasionally. I may as well be poor as to live like poor folks. It may be natural for poor folks to envy me my fast horses, my champagne, old bourbon, prime Havana, billiard and faro-playing, etc., but I am not to be curtailed of my pleasures by any. Laws and regulations may be well enough for those who can't afford to break them, but I can. Indeed, I can also afford to break carriages, slaves, or necks, and so long as I am ready to pay the damages, I'll thank your correspondent to mind his own business. He may prefer to fool away his money on libraries, lectures, churches, public parks, and such nonsense. Every one to his taste, but I go in for fast horses, fast men, fast women, and fast everything. None of your old fogeyism for young men who can afford the luxuries which distinguish them from common people. Yehu. Hugh here. Note how the last sarcastic letter writer appropriated that name Yehu and spoke in the voice of an arrogant, rich horse driver. There's so much here that's fascinating. The letters paint a picture of the horse culture in Syracuse, and they show how uh, economic and social status is tied to the partisanship of the newspapers. I'm still not clear on the alignments here because, as I've noted many times in the past, the courier tended to court the Irish vote, and to do that they often race-baited Irish against African-American, and it had a very scrappy sense to it. So it's weird to me to think that the courier was aligned with the rich people when the, the Irish people that they were trying to court were, for the most part, not rich. So I, I think it would be unsophisticated for me to see this solely in terms of, uh, of economics. I think it's more a case of the liberally-minded newspapers started the flame war, so the Courier was sort of boxed in by ideological oppositionism. They had to be against anything that the Standard and the Journal said. So the people who read the Courier were naturally going to write in accordingly. That's my theory. I'm fascinated by how closely this resembles the tone of today's social media. Today's uh, courier and union letters appeared right next to a uh, horrible screed against miscegenation. You can see this by following the link in the show notes. Read them together and feel the scornful tone. Uh, no matter what stance the journal took, the courier and union was going to take the opposite stance and flame away. Doesn't this all seem terribly familiar? Back to that word, 
Yehu. Uh, let me see. Yeah, I, I, I ran another search on phrases such as fast driving while I was trying to find material for this episode. And I want to share another couple of small articles on this same subject just to reinforce how long this problem had been going on. This is from The Courier, uh, February 1867. Fast driving. We would suggest to some of our fast men with fast nags that they had better give heed to a city ordinance against fast driving through the streets without bells being attached to their horses as a warning to pedestrians of their approach. Several ladies and gentlemen on Saturday came very near being run over by these yahoos who were letting their nags out at a 240 speed through the streets. March 27th, 1867. Again, the courier. Look out there, street etiquette. How often our pedestrians are warned by yahoo drivers of fast nags and brilliant turnouts to make room for them to pass over the crosswalks in our city. Look out there, they sing out to the little urchin who is expected to make about as quick time as their fleet nags, and if they are run down, the only comfort they receive from these liveried asses is, Get out of the way, then, you little brat! Street etiquette is at a discount in this city. Everyone for himself or herself is the rule that prevails to a great extent. A lady crossing a street expects a gentleman driving a team to stop until she gets across. That is right. When a gentleman is crossing a street and a lady is driving a team, she again expects the gentleman to stop until she gets out of the way. That is not right. On many of our crosswalks, there is room only for three persons to walk abreast. When three ladies are walking arm-in-arm arm on such a crossing and a gentleman meets them, they expect him to go into the gutter so they can pass. Perhaps that is right also, but we can't see it. December 24, 1867. Again, the courier. Fast driving. A man hurt. James Dixon, a resident of this city, was knocked down on Saturday evening by being run against by a horse which was passing down Salina Street at a furious rate, driven by a careless yahoo. Mr. Dixon was injured about the head and face. He was taken to the office of the Western Union Telegraph Company, where his wounds were dressed, and he was then taken to his house on Lodi Street. When when will the city authorities adopt some measures to prevent these frequent occurrences? And one last item from the Syracuse Journal, December 12, 1868. Yesterday, the fine slaying was improved, and James Street presented a lively scene during the afternoon. Fast horses and faster men were present in abundance, and a high old carnival of fast driving was the result. Hugh here. It would be easy to read that last article and not notice the sarcasm. That's one of the risks of reading 19th century newsprint. Some of the articles have a tone that is so over-the-top, overwrought in its purple plumminess that the dripping sarcasm and or the 
the, what's the word I'm looking for, drollness of the Balmaz is near unbearable. And then sometimes it's so subtle that it could pass right by you if, uh, if you didn't really try to get your head around it from the contemporary perspective. If you've been paying attention at all, you've noticed the term Yehu. Back three years ago when I first looked into these articles, I got curious about that and looked it up. This is from 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 17 through 37 in the New King James Bible. Now a watchman stood on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Yehu as he came, and said, I see a company of men. And Joram said, Get a horseman, and send him to meet them, and let him say, Is it peace? So the horseman went to meet him, and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Yehu said, What have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. So the watchman reported, saying, The messenger went to them, but is not coming back. Then he sent out a second horseman, who came to them, and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Yehu answered, What have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. So the watchman reported, saying, He went up to them, and is not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Yehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Then Joram said, Make ready, and his chariot was made ready. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out, each in his chariot, and they went out to meet Yehu, and met him on the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now it happened, when Joram saw Yehu, that he said, Is it peace, Yehu? So he answered, What peace, as long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many. Then Joram turned around and fled and said to Ahaziah, Treachery, Ahaziah. Now Yehu drew his bow with full strength and shot Jehoram between his arms, and the arrow came out at his heart, and he sank down in his chariot. Then Yehu said to Bidkar, his captain, Pick him up and throw him into the tract of the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I were riding together behind Ahab his father, that the Lord laid his burden up, this burden upon him. Surely I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, says the Lord, and I will repay you in this plot, says the Lord. Now therefore... Take and throw him on the plot of ground, according to the word of the Lord. Ahaziah of Judah killed. But when Ahaziah king of Judah saw this, he fled by the road to Beth-Hagan. So Yehu pursued him and said, Shoot him also in the chariot. And they shot him at the ascent of Gur, which is by Ibleam. Then he fled to Megiddo and died there, and his servants carried him in the chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. In the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah had become king over Judah. Jezebel's Violent Death Now when Yehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she put paint on her eyes and adorned her head and looked through a window. Then, as Yehu entered at the gate, she said, Is it peace, Zimri, murderer of your master? 
And he looked up at the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? So two or three eunuchs looked out at him. Then he said, Throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. And when he had gone in, he ate and drank. Then he said, Go now, see to this accursed woman, and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. So they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Therefore they came back and told him. And he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah, the Tishbite, saying, On the plot of ground at Jezreel dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as refuse on the surface of the field in the plot at Jezreel, so that they shall not say, Here lies Jezebel. Hugh here. Well, that was fun stuff. So, I ran another search in the data, in the newspaper archives, this one incorporating the word Yehu. And I found so much stuff that uh, it's way, way, way too much for this episode. So I'll probably end up doing a separate episode once I have the time to digest all those. Historic Headlines will return after this brief commercial message. Consumption, its cure and its preventive, by J. H. Schenck, M.D. Many a human being has passed away for whose death there was no other reason than the neglect of known and indisputably proven means of cure. Those near and dear to family and friends are sleeping the dreamless slumber into which, had they calmly adopted Dr. Joseph H. Shanks' simple treatment and av availed themselves of his wonderfully efficacious medicines, they would not have fallen. Dr. Shank has, in his own case, proved that wherever sufficient vitality remains, that vitality, by his medicines and his directions for their use, is quickened into healthful vigor. In this statement there is nothing presumptuous. To the faith of the invalid is made no representation that is not a thousand times substantiated by living and visible works. The theory of the cure by Dr. Shank's medicines is as simple as it is unfailing. Its philosophy requires no argument. It is self-assuring, self-convincing. The seaweed tonic and mandrake pills are the first two weapons with which the citadel of the malady is assailed. Two-thirds of the cases of consumption originate in dyspepsia and a functionally disordered liver. With this condition, the bronchial tubes sympathize with the stomach. They respond to the morbific action of the liver. Here, then, comes the culminating result and the setting in with all its distressing symptoms of consumption. The mandrake pills are composed of one of nature's noblest gifts, the potophyllum peltatum. They possess all the blood-searching, alterative properties of calomel, but unlike calomel, they leave no sting behind. The work of cure is now beginning. 
the vitiated and mucous deposits in the bowels and in the alimentary canal are ejected. The liver, like a clock, is wound up. It arouses from its torpidity. The stomach acts responsively, and the patient begins to feel that he is getting at last a supply of good blood. The seaweed tonic, in conjunction with the pills, permeates and assimilates with the food. Chylification is now progressing without its previous tortures. Digestion becomes painless, and the cure is seen to be at hand. There is no more flatulence, no exacerbation of the stomach, and appetite sets in. Now comes the greatest blood purifier ever yet given by an indulgent father to suffering man. Shank's pulmonic syrup comes in to perform its functions and to hasten and complete the cure. It enters at once upon its work. Nature cannot be cheated. It collects and ripens the impaired and diseased portions of the lungs. In the form of gatherings, it prepares them for expectoration, and lo, in a very short time, the malady is vanquished. The rotten throne that it occupied is renovated and made new, and the patient, in all the dignity of regained vigor, steps forth to enjoy the manhood, or womanhood, that was given up as lost. The second thing is, the patients must stay in a warm room until they get well. It is almost impossible to prevent taking cold when the lungs are diseased, but it must be prevented or a cure cannot be effected. Fresh air and riding out, especially in this section of the country in the fall and winter season, are all wrong. Physicians who recommend that course lose their patients if their lungs are badly diseased, and yet, because they are in the house, they must not sit down quiet. They must walk about the room as much and as fast as the strength will bear to get up a good circulation of blood. The patients must keep in good spirits, be determined to get well. This has a great deal to do with the appetite and is the great point to gain. To despair of cure after such evidence of its possibility in the worst cases and moral certainty in all others is sinful. Dr. Shank's personal statement to the faculty of his own cure was in these modest words. Many years ago, I was in the last stages of consumption, confined to my bed, and at one time my physicians thought that I could not live a week. Then, like a drowning man catching at straws, I heard of and obtained the preparations which I now offer to the public, and they made a perfect cure of me. It seemed to me that I could feel them penetrate my whole system. They soon ripened the matter in my lungs, and I would spit up more than a pint of offensive yellow matter every morning for a long time. As soon as that began to subside, my cough... Fever, pains, and night sweats all began to leave me, and my appetite became so great that it was with difficulty that I could keep from eating too much. I soon gained my strength and have grown in flesh ever since. I was weighed shortly after my recovery, added the doctor. Then, looking like a mere skeleton, my weight was only 97 pounds. My present weight is 225 pounds, and for years I have enjoyed uninterrupted health. 
Dr. Shank has discontinued his professional visits to New York and Boston. He or his son, Dr. J. H. Shank, Jr., still continue to see patients at their office, number 15 North 6th Street, Philadelphia, every Saturday from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Those who wish a thorough examination with the respirometer will be charged $5. The respirometer declares the exact condition of the lungs, and patients can readily learn whether they are curable or not. The directions for taking the medicines are adapted to the intelligence even of a child. Follow these directions and kind nature will do the rest, excepting that in some cases the mandrake pills are to be taken in increased doses. The three medicines needed no other accompaniments than the ample instructions that accompany them. First, create appetite. Of returning health, hunger is the most welcome symptom. When it comes, as it will come, let the despairing at once be of good cheer. Good blood at once follows. The cough loosens, the night's sweat is abated. In a short time, both of these morbid symptoms are gone forever. Dr. Schenck's medicines are constantly kept in tens of thousands of families. As a laxative or purgative, the mandrake pills are a standard preparation, while the pulmonic syrup, as a cure of coughs and colds, may be regarded as a prophylactic against consumption in any of its forms. Price of the pulmonic syrup and seaweed tonic, $1.50 a bottle, or $7.50 a half dozen. Mandrake pills, $0.25 a box, for sale by all druggists and dealers. Go to the show notes, and you'll see two different versions of that advertisement. The only difference is the header and footer. I started trying to transcribe the blurry version from the Syracuse newspaper, and then it hit me, well, this is probably a big ad campaign, so I'll probably find the same ad in the Chronicling America repository on the Library of Congress. Boy, was I correct about that. Uh, I went to Chronicling America, and I searched for the specific phrase, morbific actions of the liver, which you may have noticed in that ad, found 255 instances of that phrase. I did some technical jiggery-pokery and got a unique list of newspapers. Those 255 ad placements were in 23 different newspapers across the country. Uh, And again, you can see that list in the show notes. It just goes to show you the near incomprehensible scale of advertising campaigns by 1871. And I'm only coming to get my head around that scale now. I mean, up until fairly recently, I thought of that large-scale advertising campaign as something that didn't come around until the early 20th century, probably because I just associate it with that Dorothy Sayers book, Uh, Murder Must Advertise, a lot of which takes place in an advertising agency. But the more I delve into these monstrous advertising campaigns around 1871, the more I see that these, these advertising campaigns that practically beggar the imagination in their scope were already really well established by this time. And I will do a lot more about that in future 
episodes. Now, back to newspapers published this week, 150 years ago, and another flame war. This is from the Standard, April 4th, 1871. Medical experts, the result of a wrong diagnosis. The medical experts in the Sims case testified before the court that Sims was in a comatose condition, and in their opinion, he had been attacked with a severe fit of apoplexy. One of the experts, Dr. S., being called to see the patient at about 10 o'clock a.m. on the 16th Ultimo, found him vomiting freely and complaining of pain at the base of the brain. It must be a bad sign to have a pain at the base of the brain. Also, to vomit much, even if the patient had imbibed too freely of whiskey, probably not being familiar in his practice with the effects of whiskey and laudanum, the learned doctor gave it as his deliberate opinion that apoplexy had set in. Whether Sims was really comatose, the attending physician does not state, but the free vomiting and the pain at the base of the brain were certainly very suspicious circumstances. The doctor does not state what the patient vomited, nor whether there was any odor of laudanum or bad whiskey. He does not enter into the minutiae of the symptoms, but it seems that Sims was summoned to appear for trial that day in court, charged with some criminal offense. Not being duly prepared for trial, he slyly attempted to shirk responsibilities by suddenly appearing on the sick list. To achieve this desired end, he would temporarily be his own doctor. He would induce sickness enough to secure a certificate from the medical attendant. This would clear him from court. Afterwards, he would trust to luck, and especially the medical experts, for relief from the effects of the medicines. Sims was a sly old fox. He would have let the cat out of the bag and revealed to the astonished experts the real cause of his sudden sickness, but he was waiting to get the certificate first, and then he might have made a clean breast of it. To avoid the fatal error of a wrong diagnosis, men should always be honest with their doctor. This is where Sims missed his figure, but after the mischief is done, it is always easy enough to tell where everybody else has missed it. Instead of getting just comfortably sick, as Sims intended, and not being used to the tricks of the profession, he got an overdose of poison. One lesson to be learned from this case is that a man should never be his own doctor, but if he desires to take poisonous drugs, he should employ a regular physician and proceed secundum artem. And although the diagnosis might usually be confirmed by post-mortem examination, the exposure and publicity of an inquest would thus be avoided expense and publicity of an inquest would thus be avoided. Fortunately, perhaps, for the county, no antidotes were administered, for the attending physician diagnosed 
apoplexy. A wrong diagnosis proved too much for poor Sims. Sims could tolerate scandal, persecution, imprisonment, anything but a wrong diagnosis. There's the rub, but there is no great loss without some small gain. The county is relieved of the expense of the trial. Does not the doctor deserve a pension for his incalculable services to the public, even if he did allow his patient to go up the spout for lack of proper antidotes? Would it not be well for the county to employ the doctor to take care of all our criminals? He might have a comfortable salary besides his pension, and the county still be the gainer. The doctor might inaugurate a political millennium by vacating jails and courthouses, while the turbulent lawyers would find themselves minus their briefs. Taxes would be reduced to a living rate, even if the doctor's fees were a little higher. But the post-mortem examination revealed no traces of apoplexy. Some French physicians are said to pride themselves on making out a diagnosis which will be corroborated by the autopsy, a diagnosis that cannot be sustained by post-mortem examination must be a very poor diagnosis. So the doctor thought, for he testified before the coroner's jury, that he changed his mind even if it were too late to save poor Sims. The medical expert further testifies that he suspected opium poisoning all the time because he noticed the contracted pupil, but he previously testified before the court that Sims had apoplexy. Now he states that he saw Sims take a teaspoonful of laudanum, though he does not mention that he prescribed it himself. Of course he would not prescribe such medicine. He then hunted around to find the empty vial and saw the man that bought the laudanum. But no antidotes were administered. It does not appear whether Sims finally got his certificate after the experts diagnosed apoplexy, but Sims did not then send a certificate, need a certificate. He had a summons more urgent to a higher court. The verdict of the coroner's jury was death from an overdose of laudanum, and they might have added from a wrong diagnosis made by the medical experts. Saccharum lactis. Hugh here. I'm just ignorant enough of Latin. Uh, that, that meaning I, I know a little Latin from having sung a bunch of it in choirs. But that's it. I, I'm just ignorant enough of Latin to have had a funny misunderstanding. I first saw that signature line, Saccharum Lactis, and for just a second I thought that this writer signed off as Sugar Tits. And I thought that was absolutely hilarious that that, uh, that phrase might have been in use in 1871, but then I remembered that Lactis was uh, milk, rather than tits, so, yeah, so much for that theory. Uh, from Merriam-Webster, secundum artem, that's a phrase that the writer threw in to sound all hoity-toity up above there, definition of secundum artem, according to the practice, in accordance with the standard procedure of a profession or trade.
And then from Materia Medica, Saccharum lactis is milk sugar or lactose. And uh, there's a lot of uh, medical mumbo-jumbo here, but long story short, it seems to be associated with... Um, uh, where is it here? Locked the chief vehicles of remedies because he considered it the most inert substance he could find. Uh, scientific and clinical studies have shown it to be possessed of very great diuretic powers when given in full doses. So I'm not quite sure what the ridiculously smarmy and sarcastic writer was trying to say when uh, they dubbed themselves Saccharum Lactis. But, um, yeah, your guess is as good as mine. We'll return after this commercial message. Job Printing, Journal Office, number 24 Washington Street, Syracuse, New York. Prices reduced. We have the pleasure of informing our friends and patrons that we have fully equipped our jobbing department with every description of type and printing material of the newest styles, and that we have the largest and best-appointed establishment for doing every kind of job printing in central New York. Books, pamphlets, programs, posters, circulars, and small bills by the 10,000. Business cards, printing in colors, and bronzing done in the best style. Law cases and points printed upon the shortest notice and with complete accuracy. Our rooms are spacious and our force of workmen large and skillful and our facilities for printing unsurpassed. All orders will be filled with a promptness that cannot be equaled. Truair, Smith & Company. Daily Journal Office, Syracuse. Hugh here. I included that not because, not just because it's a, a neat-looking ad that covers a whole column, but just to show how extensive the printing facilities of the Syracuse Daily Journals Journal were. Uh, these newspapers were printing houses for every sort of printed material, and they did a lot of business aside from cranking out the newspapers. Now, on to the response, the, the defendant's part in the flame war. Uh, this is from April 6th in the Syracuse Standard. Medical experts, to the editor of the Syracuse Daily Standard, I noticed in your edition of April 4th an article under the above heading signing himself Saccharum Lactis and according to Dr. S of and according Dr. S of improper treatment in the case of John H. Sims deceased. I should consider it beneath my dignity to reply to sugar of milk only to inform the public that the allegation as set forth stating that no antidotes were given is false, and the article is a machination of his own mind. Antidotes were administered in proper season, and several persons were present while resuscitative treatment was given. Dr. S. Hugh here. Again, doesn't that sound familiar? 
Both of those flame wars seem to me like they could have happened yesterday on Facebook. Everything about them, the, the snarkiness, the, the snideness, the co-opting of your opponent's rhetoric, the mean-spiritedness, and the rejoicing in class superiority. All of it, if you take the contemporary vernacular out, again, I keep coming back to this point, rhetorically, it is indistinguishable from the social media of today. I hope you've enjoyed this as much as I've enjoyed telling you about it, and I look forward to more. Thanks for listening, and until next time, seek context. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines Podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Trinisky for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Oh, he'd fly through the air with the greatest of ease. A daring young man on the flying trapeze. His movements were graceful, the girls he could please, and my love he stole away.